welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. We all know that acquisition is getting more and more expensive and tougher. There's so much competition out there and it's so easy for anyone to open an ad account and throw some cash into the mix. So how could you gain that important advantage? Use your data. Take that data from your existing customers, use it across the whole marketing ecosystem to grow. But what does this mean? How can you do it? Phil Manson, founder and MD of Past Digital, is here to explain. Hi, Phil. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself, your background and how you got to where you are today? Yes, yeah, certainly. My name's Phil. I am the founder and managing director of a digital agency called Past Digital. We are one of the leading marketing automation agencies in the UK, really focusing on driving revenue from customer data through email, SMS, and predominantly through the Clavio platform at the moment. Okay, cool. Do you, are you, is it pretty much just email, SMS? Do you touch on like direct mail at all? We don't in terms of deployment, but what we do is around the data side of segmentation, retargeting. So again, working with brands to identify which cohorts or segments should be pushed up through which channel. So yeah, we're taking a kind of an overarching view of it, but we won't deploy through the direct mail channels. There's other specialists out there that can do that. But we're working with that kind of the adage of right customer, right message, right channel, right time. And we're just deploying that data through to the relevant people. Yeah. Okay, cool. So how do you guys get customers clicking? Yeah, interestingly, I was chatting to somebody else about this the other week. Our view, it's not design, it's data. So it's identifying, segmenting the data, identifying what that customer or segment of customers are interested in so that you can supply them with relevant content. So it's less about an email looking pretty. It's much more around the science behind the data selections that go on through. So you can take that in a different way. You could, as as an organization, build out five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different emails, or in our way, or our view is how do we use dynamic content within creative to really deploy the right content at the right time? So using merge fields, using product feeds that are really deploying relevant messaging. So customer, I think on average, it's about 11 seconds they'll view an email for. So there's no point creating a really long email. You want to get that content in upfront a very clear call to action to click through and get them onto the website in my view email is the vehicle the website does the selling so you've got to be thinking about where you're driving that traffic through to so it's less about a pretty picture and a call to action are you deep linking to that particular product are you putting them to the home page are you putting them through to a bespoke landing page it's that piece use email as a vehicle and then let the website do the selling yeah i suppose it's a bit like facebook ads isn't it it's yeah. get that hook in front of someone and make them go, oh, that looks interesting, click through, and then the website should do the job of actually persuading them about the product and converting them. And it can be a different segment can deploy. If we've got somebody that's a brand advocate, that they know what they want, they buy the same product, link them straight through to that page. If it's somebody that's yeah. new to the brand, you might link them through to a blog page that then links them onto the product. So again, it's just understanding those cohorts of customers. So as I say, I think it's more about the segmentation of the data than the actual look and feel. Brands seem to go either way. It's either it's just a product or it's an email full of all the content that's over, ever on the website page that you're sending people through to. So actually they go, well, I don't need to click through because you've just told me everything about it. You need to create that intrigue and get people clicking in. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, a lot of brands, I guess, relate to the 11 second thing. You get some really good emails where, yeah, someone opens the email, goes, yeah, okay, really quickly. That looks interesting. I'll, I'll check it out. They click through. And then... On the other end, you've got those emails where you open it up and you go, it's just a generic email with a load of products in, probably a blog post, probably 
connect with us on Facebook as well. A dozen different call to actions. It's very generic. And I suppose the reason probably people probably spend no more than 11 seconds in it is because they look at this email and go, it's just crap. There's nothing in there for me. I'm just going to delete it. And you also have to really define what your success metrics are for that particular campaign and email. Is it yeah. a conversion, i.e. a sale, or is it that you just want to provide some information? And I think if you get hung up on one of those metrics, oh, we want to improve our click-through rate, or you can do that and you can artificially inflate those percentages. But we're looking at yeah, the unique number of opens, unique number of clicks, the sales, the orders. It's really trying to look at it not in isolation, but the whole picture. Uh, yeah, so I went with a brand who sent a daily email a little while Worked ago. with a few of those in the past. And it's just, it's too much. And so, well, the thing is, they also went down the route of segmentation. So they were sending a daily email to their, however many segments they had, which meant each email was being built for a segment of less than a thousand people. And I was like, look, to be honest, you're a small brand. You're wasting so much time and resource putting out a daily email for these different segments. You could be doing, well, focus on the flows for starter, but then just do like a weekly, just do one weekly email and yeah, like do some, have some dynamic content in there, which actually speaks to those different segments. But all you've got to do is build one email. I think brands, so especially smaller brands, which are doing it internally, don't consider the opportunity cost of actually building those emails. So I think it's different when you're employing an agency because you can see the cost, but when you've got someone internally, you don't, they don't notice that and they don't realize what's going on. And it's, there's an opportunity cost for everything that you do. And if you're, let's say you worked on a £150 an hour hourly rate, if you were using a third party and you're building an email and it's such a small cohort segment that realistically you're selling a t-shirt at £60, you make, you sell three t-shirts well, you're not making your money back from spending that hour developing that campaign. So it, brands need to think about that piece as well. It's the cost of sale doesn't really come into it sometimes. And I think that's the important bit. The other interesting one is quite often brands get into that daily email routine or twice a day or three times is because they're seeing their competitors do it. Now, what they don't realize or they see the bigger, the sports directs doing it or whatever, they don't realize the size of the databases. Those databases can almost afford to churn a certain amount of data through unsubscribes. When you have smaller brands, you can't. You need Everyone's important in that database. But it does come back to that adage of quality in, quality out. So we don't want a vanity metric of a large volume of signups, large volume of emails sent. We want quality. You're better off sending to 100 people that are going to buy versus 10,000 people that have no idea who you are. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, like segmentation and customer data before. So how do, how can brands leverage that data better? I think that what we're seeing in the market with the tech ecosystem as well, when you look at platforms such as Bloomreach, where it's the CDP, the customer data platform, is brands need to think about putting the customer at the heart of everything. So at the moment, a lot of brands will be siloed into, we've got an email marketing manager, we've got someone running PPC, we've got someone running SEO. And those individuals have got their own individual targets but they're not aligned around the customer. So for me, brands can leverage customer data more if they put the customer at the heart of their strategy. So if they're starting to think about what does this customer need at these points, how does that then affect the marketing that goes out versus just trying to sell product? You will sell more product if you think about the customer and what they're expecting versus I've got a product manager that's got a new product we need to sell. So it's thinking much more about customer first marketing rather than just brand marketing and pushing sales. Yeah, I think definitely when I was in house. It's, it was all about sales, yeah. right? It was always how much revenue are we making? 
targets. We want to we want to see this amount of improvement in revenue. And some of the business I, businesses I was at were startups, yeah. right? So I get there was that feeling of we've got to keep going, otherwise we have a problem. But also there were problems with the with the website, with the app, and stuff. So it wasn't just a case of well we could market more and we could grow because we knew that we weren't converting as well as we should do, but we couldn't fix it because we were the local marketing team. Our job was just to acquire customers. Yeah. So that then does lead to the only kind of tool in our toolkit is send more emails. It's some promotional emails and just try and drive those sales. I mean, it's a really tough because I am, a, you know, what I would class as a commercial marketeer. I'm not a, I'll alienate some people by saying I'm not into the brand side. I think much more around driving relevancy and we're looking for a conversion be that through a softer brand message versus an explicit this is on sale by now but there is an adage you know you look at some people coming to an organization that are high volume senders and they'll come and go well if we're sending a million emails a month we're making a million pounds let's send two million because what makes it the law of diminishing returns means you're not going to make that and actually then you need to start balancing things like unsubscribe rates spam complaint rates and that sort of thing so i think it is a case of well turning on its head and going well look we've got let's say we've got a product that has a typical life span of 30 days well i'm not going to use twice as much if you send me more emails but how can i use that to influence somebody else within the family or friend to to join that product and start to use it how do i start to add value with upsells cross sales versus just buy this product again and again yeah well fun enough i was talking to someone who sells bike parts yesterday and he said they they sent about five email campaigns a year because partly because they're doing well enough right they don't really have the resource for it anyway but also if you don't need a bike part being sent an email is not going to make you go oh yeah i'll buy myself a new bike chain like no it's a really interesting to to counteract that though i spent in a previous life spent many years so working tech side but running email programs for avis car rental avis and budget group oh yeah now it's a it's not a considered purchase. You either need car rental or you don't. But actually moving them to a cadence of two emails a month plus a non opener resend kind of in between those actually increased sales dramatically. I think we took their revenue, it was five X in three years. So it was being front and centre as that reminder of, Oh yeah, I need a car. I had an email, you know, three days ago from budget or Avis, whatever it was. It's a really interesting one. And again, I think it comes back to testing and saying, actually, what works for our client base? Your bike example, I'd have probably said, okay, five emails a year is great, but that's a big spike in product sales to try and deploy and manage and, and get out the door. How do we almost flatline that demand across months? So actually it's easier to get out of the warehouse efficiently. I mean, maybe, maybe this should go down the Michelin route, right? And say if Michelin sell, sell tires, so they put Michelin guides out to get people to drive more so they would then buy more tires. Yeah. They, maybe they go down the same route and say, well, if you don't need new gears for your bike you're not going to buy them but if we can make you need more gears for your bike yeah Yeah. so i mean uh, so i had a similar thing right as you i worked for a a car club a bit like zip car and yeah we found original thinking was kind of if you don't need a car you're not going to book one so what can we do about that and we started to put together little kind of adventure guides and say why don't you book a car and go visit this place in the uk yeah. So we started to do, we, we almost create them almost like really a little we, weekend package deal sort of things where we'd say you can go take a car three days, 
uh, X amount of miles on the package and 150 quid or whatever. And that worked really well at boosting up our bookings, but also it moved, it really increased the, the length of bookings because yeah. most people book a car for a couple of hours just to do a quick trip, go pick something up or whatever. And we were trying to move that to, well, we want people booking for a couple of days because that's where we're profitable on the yeah. car. We've got to book in the hours. Because also if someone books from nine till 12, it's, we can't really have a booking that starts at 12. No. We're going to be doing a 12.30 at most, which means we lose half an hour. More likely, you're going to lose a bit longer than that. So if we can get someone to book out the entire day, we've we've paid for all those hours instead. Yeah. No, definitely. You reduce your admin costs, et cetera, et cetera, because you're yeah. not processing multiple orders. Just cleaning between cars. Yeah. I wasn't there during COVID, but you know they had to clean the cars properly during COVID. So they had to block out certain time and had to pay someone to go and actually clean the car properly in between bookings. So- Get, getting people to book for longer was much, much better for them Yeah, in those days. How do you know when customers are ready to buy? Right, so if you are going down that kind of commercial route of we want to make money from these emails, obviously, right message, right time for people. But how, how do you know when someone's ready to buy? Oh, I wish there was an easy answer for this one. It's the million-dollar question. So if you knew exactly when someone was ready, you would just do it. I think you can look at various trends, so how deep are they going into the website, what are they looking at in terms of pages, how many times are they coming back. So this is where some of your re- softer metrics around your retargeting, like your browser abandonment, add to cart and basket abandonment work really well because you're automating that process. It really comes down to trying to understand some of the data, in my view. So if you can understand who is a good customer for a particular brand, you can start to identify the traits that they those good customers did. You can start to recognize that in the prospects, for example, to say, ah, okay, a good customer for brand X is that they come in and they visit these three pages, they add this to their basket and then abandon. Well, that person who's done that trait, we can then tag those and do something differently with them. So it comes down to data, comes down to analysis. Really interesting a few years ago in the gaming sector, they used to go mad. They would, if they hadn't got someone who'd signed up depositing and then betting at least twice, I think it was in six weeks, they were lost. So they were intensive. It was an email an hour, it was SMS, because they knew they needed to get them in that that process. So the data will tell you, and it also should then tell you how you can find more of those people that fit that criteria. So how can you look alike audience and find people with those characteristics so it it comes back to thinking about data first rather than channel so if you're just sending emails sending sms doing facebook campaigns and not thinking about what's it driving and you're just thinking about that acquisition at the end you can't then go back up the phone and go find more people like this yeah yeah i've worked in the gaming space so i'm very well aware of that there's a lot of machine learning in place a lot of predicted lifetime value stuff we knew if someone signed up, deposited, and played on the same day, they're going to be a more valuable player. Obviously, if they made a second deposit on that day, it was highly likely they were going to be VIP and their value would be really high. Whereas if someone signed up and didn't deposit, we know even if we can convert them later, which I think we worked out, about two-thirds of our conversions, conversion to play, happened up to about six weeks after registration. So that's when we focused our funnel. Our, our email flows, it wasn't too intense. You know, we, it wasn't like hourly, daily, kind of finish signing up, get your off, welcome offer and all that. Yeah. But it was and it, it was very much offer-based. Yeah. But it, it works for that industry, right? When it's just, here's a welcome offer. Like, you're basically saying, here's free cash yeah. to use on our website. Right. 
But it's there's no to get someone in, isn't it? It's you yeah. Know, there, there's no real need to go down the content brand value route when people just people want to gamble. If they want to gamble, just offers them offer them some free cash and you get them over the line. <laughs> yeah, sounds really bad. It's that sector though, isn't it? I think it's not going to change. People, it's one of the oldest industries in the world, really, isn't it? Gambling. It's it will just go through a different way. I suppose without going into it too much, it's the ease that people can gamble now could be seen as a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I don't know. I've not been involved for about three, three and a half years now, so I don't really know how things have changed. Apart from there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry, gambling tax went up a bit, and I think that. So my the, the company I work for merged with a partner and went public, and then I think they either got bought or merged. Different people use different terminology. They merged with another company, and then I think they might have done another one a little bit after that. So I think, yeah, I think all the big brands are all grouping together, and we're going to see a handful of kind of mega groups, a bit like FMCG, right? You've got Unilever and brands like that who own like 90% of, of the brands in those spaces. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I think it will be a lot of consolidation across the e-commerce space as well in the next 24 months, I think. There's already lots of US agencies coming, trying to come into the UK market. They're looking to buy other a- existing agencies. So I think there's going to be more consolidations we go through as people look to scale, but cost effectively. So yeah, sometimes it's cheaper just to buy something. How do brands get, well, I suppose, yeah, this feeds quite well into that point, actually. How do brands get more share of wallet? I think for me, it comes back to this. You have to think about retention. So a lot of, I think, marketeers, brands think about the acquisitions. Acquisitions really important. We need to get more people in top of funnel. You see PPC budgets go through the roof, but they're not then thinking about how do we retain those customers through retention strategies? How do we think about... We've paid to get somebody to the website through a PPC campaign and they haven't purchased. How do we then identify them so that we can retarget them through more cost-effective channels? So it all plays into this brands keeping the share wallet. We need to keep them engaged with that brand so that they don't go off and look for a competitor. So that could be a discount. It could just be the value add that the brand gives. It could be the ICP of that brand and how it plays with it well within the environmental space and its unique product and positioning. It's about saying to people, well, they're not spending... £100 with you because they're spending £100 with somebody else, how do we get a proportion of that £100 a month, whatever it may be? So we're seeing it across the space. We're having to work harder to get people's money. It's probably easier for, say, something like a dog food where it's a necessity purchase. You might cut down the brand in terms of the quality to save costs, but you need to feed your dog. If you're selling, I don't know, a very expensive handbag, it's an aspirational purchase. It's you someone's had to work very hard to buy that. So unless you're in that sort of, I suppose, mega wealthy collection category where really the cost isn't the issue, it's for us mere mortals where we go, well, I've got my £100, I can spend it there or there. How do we start to work that through? Yeah. Aside from the product itself, because I think that's incredibly important, how much can you actually influence retention? Because when I'm, I was thinking about some of the examples you mentioned, dog food, for example, Right. We buy the same dog food all the time. We buy massive bags of it. And the reason is the dog eats it, right? We kn- we had a previous dog. He got fussy about certain foods. We kept changing. We eventually found what he ate and we stuck with it. Yeah. Right. So nothing another brand does 
is going to make us move because the dog eats that food. Well, um, interestingly, on, on uh, you could almost argue about the share of wallet in that case being are they buying direct from us as the brand or are they going through an aggregated third party where, you know, an Amazon where there's additional costs involved. So actually yeah. you're starting, potentially you may be brand loyal, but you may not be channel loyal. So you might go where the best discount is. It might be in the shop for Pets Home one week. It might be on Amazon the, the week after, or it might be direct with the brand's website on the third week. You're still buying that product. Actually, I think what the brands are looking to do is have that direct sale versus yeah. through the aggregator. Yeah, so okay, so not necessarily trying to steal a customer from someone else because they're going to be loyal. Yeah, right, uh, thinking of other examples, right? Even this T-shirt, right? I found the T-shirt I like. It's, it's true classic. I don't know if you know of them. Yeah, yeah. They, it's a really nice T-shirt. fits really well. It's comfortable. I'm going to go back and buy these T-shirts from them, right? Nothing anyone else does is going to convince me to buy a T-shirt from them because I know these fit me. They're nice. I'm sorted. And I have the same thing with various other products. I've got a product I like, so I'm always going to buy it from them. That's a typical yes. man thing, though. I found a pair of trousers that fit me nicely. I'm going to buy the same trousers in three different yeah. colours. <laughs> yeah, probably. But yeah, I'm, yeah, actually, I, I do that. So I, I, I spoke. Uh, yeah. They fit. They're comfortable. I'm just going to buy from them. Yeah. I can't be bothered trying out stuff in different places. It's too much hassle. But yeah, to your point, it's how can they get a more profitable purchase? Yeah, I suppose it's so. If they're buying from a channel which costs them thirty percent, then how can we get someone to buy it direct? And we know it's very rare, unfortunately, for a brand to make profit on the first order, especially if it's come through from a, an acquisition channel. Yeah, profit for the customer is in the lifetime value of that second, third, maybe fourth, fifth purchase. So, the more the brands can retain of those subsequent purchases direct, the more profitable that customer becomes over its lifetime. And this kind of leads me into the next question about how you can kind of retain people. I probably get that those more profitable purchases by bringing people on site. Everyone's favorite retention methods, subscribe and save, points based loyalty programs. I suppose maybe a bit of personalization, but that's a little different. What are your thoughts on, yes, subscribe and save and loyalty point programs? They all have their place. I think there is a challenge within the industry, though, and in that SaaS companies selling a product, a silver bullet that we're going to come and put this app in, we're going to put a loyalty program. No one's thought about what the metrics are, what the mechanisms are for that loyalty program. So they're not picking a loyalty per se, but it's a generic process and it's not silver bullet. It's like IT come in and just tick the box. So we need a loyalty program tick. Nobody's thought about what it means for the customer. Do we need points? Or actually, do we just want to be able to softly recognize that a customer is a valued customer, put them through a, a custom panel when we're asking about future launches of products? Are we just going to surprise and delight them? If that that kind of generic, oh, yeah, we've got a loyalty program, we're going to plant a tree, yeah. what does it mean to the customer? What value is it giving it? Yeah. And quite often, brands will incentivize that first order or first subscription order, and then suddenly they're back into full price, and you see it. Because people who recognize that trait will just go through, receive their first subscription order, cancel it, and go back and start the whole process again. They're using it to gain the system. It's not adding value as a subscription. It's just offering more eroding 10% of margin. Yeah, that's exactly what I've done. Uh, plenty of times, <laughs> I'm sure loads of people do it. You, you sign up for subscribe and save your product. I mean, it might not even be delivered. 
yes, sometimes I wait for a shipping confirmation and then that's my reminder to go in and cancel the subscription. Yeah. And then I mean, when I'm ready for it, I will buy again. I mean, I've been a subscriber for dog food. Again, two large dogs. It's but it's easy to do. It's great. It's delivered. I like the flexibility of that. Where I've always said, and I'd love a brand to really test it, is you can subscribe for the convenience on a, a 30-day rolling, and it's just the convenience, but it's full price. Or you commit and prepay for a longer period, and you then get the save element. Yeah. So, yeah. That would be a really interesting one. I do think there's some work to be done within those subscription platforms around the benefits. Of, and what I mean by that is how to report back to an organization that, that this service has allowed you to increase lifetime value from X to Y. At the moment, it's looking at active subscribers, i.e. those people that have currently got an active subscription. It's not really giving us the value. And then when you look at... Well, yeah, I think it's too easy to gain that data. Because the people who subscribe, cancel, subscribe, cancel, the platform might say, well, yeah, your subscribers have a better lifetime value than your non-subscribers. But actually, these guys are still one-off purchases. Right? They're, just, they're loyal to the brand. They like the product. They're just willing to subscribe in order to get a discount. So the actual subscription is, yeah, like I said, like having a subscription actually doesn't offer anything. It's literally just people taking advantage of that discount. The, and the other one that comes up with this quite a lot, and you, you may have seen this in your customers' data, around you put a subscription process in place. Actually, because it's taking your cream of your best email customers who are buying regularly from an email reminder, your email sales look to drop off. Your direct sales are going up because obviously the first sale is counted under whatever channel it came through on. After that, it's direct sales and you're sitting there going, you have to change your email strategy if you're putting in a subscription yeah. service to what? really then start to say, well, this is what we're doing with these people to drive those traits for a, a really loyal subscriber. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see that. Like, why is our why is email performance dropping off? Why aren't we generating as much revenue from email? It's like, well, because email's doing its job. In this case, it's it's a different API. Subscribers. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an interesting. I, I mean, the other one that I'd love to be able to test, and it's a really tough one, is. Quite often, brands will now, with a subscription service, default to the subscribe and save versus the one-off purchase. Amazon do it. If you go in and try and buy toilet rolls, it's subscribe and save. Yeah. How many people you know, inadvertently subscribe and then cancel because they don't realize that customer experience is quite poor? And it's you know, how do you start getting people through that process? So there, I, there's definitely benefits to it. I also see some negatives with some brands going, oh, there's more value in us as being a subscription business. How do we turn our one-off product into a subscription service that isn't really a subscription service yeah. so it's those sort of things you've also got to start and the, the challenge being around households versus individuals so i know i subscribe to coffee for example but all five of us in the house drink coffee i'm going to go through it more efficiently than say yourself who just, is only you that drinks coffee so how do you start then playing around with the frequency of reminders to restock, et cetera? There's a great product out there called Rello, which I'm sure you're aware of, that allows you to start looking at that algorithm and starting to push that through, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. And it's yeah. you know, that that's where I think the, the machine learning can really come in and help really improve that customer experience. I'll give you another example of that, though. Years ago, I did some work with Maxi Muscle and sat there in their head office oh, yeah. watching the orders come through. And you had people there that were clearly just buying on that offer. So you'd have an order of two products coming through. One was for muscle gain and one was for weight loss. 
Now, you could read between the lines and go, well, it was myself buying for my wife and I, and it was two different people using that product. But it's very difficult on a line item coming through to go, where do we put this customer? He's brought muscle gain and weight loss in the same order. What segment and cohort? So there is an element you still need that human logic to come in over the machine because you would define and change how that journey post-sale worked. Yeah, I mean, I think AIs can be interesting. At the moment, I think it's okay. I think it, it does an okay job with certain things. But for example, the podcast, I, I use it to transcribe the podcast. It writes me summary, description, blog posts and stuff. I don't use a lot of that. But yeah, every now and again, it in the summary or description, it will name the podcast. It's the time for customers who click podcast. And it's picked that up because that's how I introduced the show at the start of every episode. I say it's time for customers who click. Right, so it's misunderstood that, and it's decided the name of the podcast is Time for Customers Who Click, not just Customers Who Click. And that's where, yeah, I think in that matching muscle example, it's going to be, it's just going to misunderstand the data because it doesn't know that there is a possibility that one person is buying for two different people. Yeah. But I think it, it will get better. I mean, I've been in this industry, what, 13 odd years, and I can remember very early on people. And we were the ESP at the time, finding out who the ESP of the brand was, ringing them up going, how do you know that I've left something in my basket? Why are you sending me this email? And it transitions over the years to be, you sent me this email, but it's no use because you haven't put in the email what was in my basket. Yeah. And it kind of evolves and expectations change. And it's really interesting that the privacy piece comes up regularly, but actually people want the convenience of knowing a certain amount. The fact that the website recognizes it's you and this is your preferences, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to give up a little bit of data to be able to do that. And it's a really, I think it's, it's boiling the frog, isn't it? Little bits adding on versus a big back overnight is a different change. We had a little GDPR discussion last night, which is a great topic for a, a summer party. I'm, I'm on the side of, I think it's just getting in the way. It doesn't, it doesn't really do anything to actually deter the bad players in, in, in the space. They're going to keep spamming. All it does is cause issues for the brands who are trying to just doing things properly and just want to get on with selling and being a brand. And the, ma- the main thing that came up was this guy was saying, I think he said 13 out of 15 of his competitors were technically breached GDPR because they were auto-opting people into their newsletter at checkout. Ah, see, that's interesting because actually that is legal because it falls under PECA, Privacy and Electronic Communication Regulation. So if you're... Processing the data under legitimate interest is perfectly fine. I was going to, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to add to that. A couple of brands recently are, are sort of saying, do we even need to ask them? So we just put it in our privacy policy. I yeah. Just- well, I think there's, I'm fine with collecting data. And I think abandoned cart is one that you can get away with because that is that legitimate interest. Adding, to, adding people to your newsletter, though, I think that's one that should be, well, I don't really care if it's opt-in or not, but that's the one that, should be like, do, you know, do people actually want to get this email? We should just... Well, the, and the, just then it comes back. I mean, we could have a whole conversation yeah. on this. <laughs> the interesting one, I had a, a bit of, a, well, a frank conversation with a consultant last year around, well, you can't pre-tick a box. Well, you can, obviously, yeah, pre-ticks. I'd like to receive emails from brand A. Their way around it was to say that you had to tick the box to, to opt out. So I, it was an untick box saying, Click this box if you don't want to hear from us. And I go, that's the same thing, but it's not clear to the customer. So for me, 
much more efficient and still legal to have a pre-tick box saying sign up to our newsletter that the customer can understand. Your version's actually clearer. Sorry? It's, it, your version's clearer and actually better for the customer exactly. because they understand it. Whereas the double box, negatives, the double tick, negatives, tick the box, you don't want to receive it. It's yeah. like the number of times, in fact, recently, there's been a couple of times when I have just ticked that box. I've un- no, I've left it unticked because I've gone, well, I don't want to opt in, so I'll leave it unticked. And then I've just, just almost like out the corner of my eye, I've seen do not yeah. in that text. And then I've read it and I've gone, oh, actually, I have to click it to not get the emails. Yeah. See, whereas I think, you know, a very simple pre-tick box, yes, I'd like to receive emails from you. It's very clear to the customer. You can do it for email. What you can't do is pre-tick the SMS or the posts or third-party opt-ins. They have to be an explicit tick the box. But as long as they're consistent... I know the third part one, but why SMS? Surely that's the same as email in terms of like the type of data it is. I don't know is the honest answer. And I'm trying to think back to the PECA documentation, but SMS is that grey area. And I think it it might be a UK thing where we see SMS is a little bit more intrusive than email. I don't know. But yeah, email certainly can be a pre-tick box. I have more of an issue when it's a pre-ticked, but tick to opt out because that to me is just confusing to the customer it's the it's, double negative and it's deliberately misleading it's not exactly confusing it is it's designed to get people to do the opposite of what they want to do yeah Whereas, you've got to have a piece of paper out and you're writing down the double negative to try and work out whether you're <laughs> yeah. actually in or out so but I, yeah i my view and is that you have to have the statement there the tick box i'm more frustrated when it's you're not asked and it's hidden in the t's around and also from a browser perspective Legally, you can't then take that data until they've submitted an order. Whereas actually using the tick box, you can take it. They've, they've gone past that statement. They've added more information in. Great. Yeah. You could legally take that as an opt-in. If you hide it in the T's and C's, they, you can't take that data until they've submitted their order. And we know a lot of people don't get to the checkout and then abandon. So from a brand's perspective, in my view, it's better to have it up front, very visible, and off we go. Yeah. So the one that must be illegal, though, must be in breach, is having to opt in order to confirm. So I see this more on the B2B side. When it tells you, it gives you an error and says, oh, no, you must opt in to email in order to proceed, like download this thing, send a quote. And I'm like, why? Why? I mean, B2B is a different kettle of fish on the B2C anyway. But yeah, it's again, I think it just leaves a negative connotation. And I, I think unless you're getting a download where it's going to be emailed to, you're likely just to put in a random address anyway the data quality is not there if you're forced Um, so actually who was it crafted london i think because i was looking at their website yesterday in their checkout the opt-in box for the email stated to receive like shipping important shipping updates or something which i thought was a really weird opt-in to have because people don't have to opt in for that right that's a transactional thing you're allowed to send those emails so I was like, well, hey, are they, does that mean they're not sending those emails if you don't opt in, which is a bad experience? Or is it actually a sneaky way of getting people to opt into their database? Yeah. I'd have to have a look at that particular one. I've seen a few where, let's take the Shopify ecosystem, brands have updated their email statement to include WhatsApp messaging. So they go, give us your email address to opt into email us and WhatsApp. And you know what? It's one parameter. It's your email address. It's okay. one um, permission against email it's not against whatsapp 
for me, it's really hard to manage. Shopify, I've improved that now. You've got your text text me with order updates, but also then you've got the new drop down for I'd like to receive marketing via SMS. Again, I think I think it's underhand. I think you have to be as clear and as explicit as possible. Yeah. And also think, yes, you can maybe potentially configure Shopify wording and customize it to how you want the data in Shopify. But if you take a platform like Clavio with their integration, it's not going to do what you want with the data at the back end. So keep it simple. Keep just email as the in, in the email field with the email opt-in. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it comes down to something I read a week or so ago. Is this an experience you'd be happy for your month to go through? If the answer is no, it means you are trying to be manipulative. You're trying to s- sneak something through. So, yeah, I think that's a really good way. But I think it comes back to that, tie everything back to the customer. If it's going to piss the customer off, all you're doing is causing, you spent all that money top of funnels to get people to the site to then ruin it. Would, it can be as simple as, would this piss you off? If you were buying something on a website and this would annoy you, yeah. then don't do it. It's amazing how many brands ignore that piece yeah. and will do something that they know is not great and might, it's probably going to annoy them, but they'll happily the, do it on the, their website. The other, their while we're talking opt-in on the, on the other gap, that see it quite often with the probably the Magento side of the industry around the guest checkout and yeah. not asking people at that point if they want to opt into email. So you've got, you know, certainly for your one-time users, you're unlikely to sign up for an account you're going to go through the guest checkout, but you're lo- because then they're not asking for the marketing permission at any point during that guest checkout. They lose so much data. Yeah, we had a customer that had a, a couple of years ago had huge growth through lockdown, but because they hadn't got the checkout, they'd gained a hundred thousand people in their database that they couldn't mail because eighty-five percent had gone through guest checkout, and they weren't hadn't been asked for the marketing permission. So it makes your year two numbers really. You've got all those people you've paid to acquire. You can't talk to them. Yeah. No, you've got to be, you've then got to be quite creative. Yes. How you get those people back, which is where stuff like direct mail comes in. Yeah, I've done a lot of that in the past. In fact, with GDPR hit and I was in gambling, we use direct mail a lot. We have, I don't want to go into this too much because we're almost out of time. But <laughs> basically, we the situation was that pre-GDPR, the opt-ins had been for the brand plus third parties. That's one opt-in which was no longer a valid opt-in. Yep. So for those brands, we started like leading up to GDPR. We were, I'm going to say, I don't want to say hammering because it's really bad, especially in gambling, but you know, <laughs> we were contacting these people a lot, email, SMS, direct mail, saying you need to sort your, basically come back to the website, decide what you want to opt into. And then we use some points like members who opt in to these channels benefit from, 250% more promotions than people who don't. Yeah. Which was true. Everyone got access to those promotions because you're not allowed to selectively send them so much. But obviously, the people who we can communicate to are the people who get them because they know about it. Right. Cool. Uh, just before we finish, then, anyone in the e commerce world you'd like to sit down for lunch with? It's not so much e commerce, but certainly from a brand perspective. And it'd either be P- Porsche or Rolex because I think they've created this kind of unobtainium of their product. So if you wanted to buy one of the sports series of Porsche, the GT3s, you can't just go off the street and buy them. You're going to pay a huge premium. Same with Rolex. You can't, God knows how Rolex afford to keep all those shops and there's no stock in them. It's, it amazes me. But I think they've managed to create this halo effect within those brands of this is the best thing since sliced bread. And I'm sure if I went and drove a, 
the Porsche Sports Series car, I would have no idea how to drive it properly and get the best out of it. But it's that kind of uh, up there in the sky of something that you want. And I'd love to sit down and work out how they've got to that point, both of them, because I think, yeah, Rolex, you can go in off the street and buy uh, Casio and Omega or uh, whatever there and then. They're there in the shop. Yeah, and it does exactly the same thing as the Rolex. But this kind of keeping production low just creates this aura around the product. And I think it's a really interesting piece of it versus low production, high margin versus high production, low margin type ethos. Yeah. Well, I think a brand to keep an eye on then is, I think it's called Batch London, or it might just be Batch. They do basically limited runs of suits. So they do really nice suits. I, I don't know how many they've produced, but they're, the, a big idea behind it is they don't want to overproduce and have wastage. Mm. Right, it's, they, they've got quite a sustainable focus on it. So they say, we, we only want to create enough for the demand. But also by doing that, they can create the demand by having that scarcity. Do you know a brand called Loki? Hello. Um, I know. Yeah, I do know the brand name. But I can't remember what they do. Yeah, a ve- vegan trainers. So okay. not so much a batch production, but low low production runs so there's not excess stock so it's almost just in time it's a batches it comes over it's sold they get, get the next batch so yeah. really interesting around the sustainability side of it's similar to the batch london yeah okay cool and finally if you've got one more one final piece of advice for brands two things ignore channels and think about the customer so think about the right customer right channel right message and don't over test yeah, certainly when you're in the early days and you've got small volumes actually just getting a message out with some dynamic content versus you're not going to get statistically significant results from running a, an A-B test on 500 people. You're not yeah. going to know if one or two people clicking are going to skew the results. So don't over-test. Think about just the customer. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing when actually just testing down the funnel as well. Yeah. Testing on your eighth sunset flow email, which goes out to... 30 people a month maybe yeah. you're just wasting time you're not going to add anything yeah and the other thing when we're thinking about that we've worked with brands across multiple countries and they are, we're going to do a brand refresh we need everything perfect and 100% right before it's launched you're like, well actually that email in that flow is three weeks time let's not worry about that for another couple of weeks we can launch now because you yeah. think about the timing through so it's like we can stagger this approach we don't have to have a thousand emails updated all in one go we can actually batch and roll this out. And as to your point, it could be this three people a year going through that email. Do we even need it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. If anyone wants to reach out there and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Through the website, www.pass.co.uk. So pass is P-A-A-S-E. Or find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Phil. No problem at all. There's so much you can do to enhance the customer experience and grow your business if you exploit the data you already have. You don't have to just keep throwing tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars at advertising as your only source of growth. But if you want to, you can do it even better by using your data. Learning from your customers and really understanding them opens up so many opportunities across both your acquisition and retention marketing, allowing you to put the right message in front of the right person at the right time. If you'd like to learn more from Phil, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to willcustomersuclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got Richard Harris joining me. We're going to be talking about how brands can use AI to help them understand their data better. But until then, keep those customers clicking.